Shows that make you laugh. Shows that make you think. Music that moves you. It could only be one place. Universal Broadcasting Network. Tune in at ubnradio.com. Animal Magnetism. Exploring animal care for creatures great and small. Conservation and preservation in today's world. Find out what a single voice can do to make a difference in the lives of animals. Animal Magnetism with Carolyn Hennessy starts right now on UVN Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Actually, it's good evening. It's good evening. I keep forgetting that we pre-tape because this show used to be on live at 8 o'clock in the morning. Who listens at 8 o'clock in the morning, for heaven's sakes? And now we are on at 7 p.m. every other Sunday. Catch the archives. They are incredible, amazing shows. I am your host, Carolyn Hennessy. Welcome to Animal Magnetism. Joining me back, she's back. Yay, Andrea. The wonderful Andrea Compton, my producer, my co-host. Good morning, sweetie. How's Seattle? Seattle is a wee bit smoky, thanks to Canada. Yes, I guess. And and I think we were talking before the show, your air quality is worse than Beijing at the moment? Yeah, (laughs) it might be better today. Oh, sure. Okay. We'll see. All right. right. Well, you know, just just wait five seconds. The the weather will change in in Seattle. Uh, so, So good to have you back. We are also joined again by our sort of perennial co-host. So we have, there are three of us. Dr. Gray Stafford, my alpha and omega. Good morning. It's great to see you both. Wonderful to see you again, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on. We have a, we have a very, we have a very interesting, uh, and interesting guest today. Uh, is, is sort of his, his, his bio will reads as follows because there's, there's so much try and try and keep up. Listeners, Gary Steiner is the presidential professor of philosophy at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, where he has taught since 1987. He is the author of three books on animals, Anthropocentrism and its Discontents, colon, The Moral Status of Animals in the History of Western Philosophy, Animals and the Moral Community, colon, Mental Life, Moral Status, and Kinship, and Animals and the Limits of Postmodernism. He is the editor with Rutgers University law professor Gary L. Francione of Critical Perspectives on Animals book series at Columbia University Press. Next fall, he will be teaching his course, Eating Animals, Western Philosophical Perspectives at Bucknell, and he is a native of Southern California, ah, a transplant, and looking forward to moving back to Los Angeles in the summer of 2022. Uh, you have an official website, which, of course, we will put up on, on our site, uh, but it is www. Faxstaff, F-A-C-S-T-A-F-F dot Bucknell dot E-D-U slash G Steiner, S-T-E-I-N-E-R. You don't have a Twitter or, or Facebook page, Dr. Steiner. Why no, not? I'm a hammer and chisel type. You're a hammer and chisel type. Cash on the barrel head for you. <laughs> right? I just never, never got into social media. I don't have kids, and, you know, that's always the conduit to being current on technology, and I'm a little bereft over Listen, here. Listen, my, my, my 10-year-old nephews. Keep keep Auntie Carolyn au courant. Trust me. But you do you That's do, what I'm talking about. Yeah, you do That's have pets, about. or you did have, I should say. You wrote a very you wrote a wonderful article, um, January 25 of 2014, lessons in philosophy from a cat. And your this cat was a was an incredible rescue that uh, that yeah, was brought to you by one of your Pindar. students, Pindar. And unfortunately, I think we had to say goodbye to Pindar just a, a couple of days ago. Is that true? 
It's actually a couple of months ago. It was late ago. March after he was a rescue cat that a student of mine found uh, in fall of 2006, and he had feline AIDS and feline leukemia, and he was crudded up in a, a number of ways. And the veterinarian said, well, let's just put him to sleep right now. And I said, no, 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 no. Fix him up as well as you can. I'll bring him home, and he'll be mine. And the veterinarian said, this is very noble, but he's only going to last weeks or months. And he lived 10 full years. Wow. And uh, wow. he had an epic health struggle in the last two years that was, you know, I, I heard you uh, uh, interview my very good friend, Larry Kay. Yes from Life's a Bark, and he he mentioned, uh, you mentioned actually in that discussion how expensive pet ownership can be. It's true. Um, it was a very expensive last couple of years, and he put up an enormous struggle, and Pindar finally gave up the ghost in late March. Well, listen, as long as Pindar was not in any pain, then, uh, then you know, we're, we're all for uh, prolonging, extending the lives of animals, keeping them in the best care possible, as long as the animal's not in any pain. That's, that's you know, we're all, we're all for that. But draining your, you know, your bank account, that's, I, that, that is, it's certainly a consideration for most people. It, 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 it is. And, and for me, like I said, I don't have children. That's one factor. Right. Another one is just my views on animal rights, as I hope will become clear in our discussion today, um, are such that, you know, I felt that I needed to treat him the way I would treat any family member. You right. know what I mean? Right. So That's, go to you, extraordinary lengths. Absolutely, absolutely true. A family member, um, ostensibly, um, unless they are comatose, uh, ostensibly could tell you whether or not they were in pain and suffering. An animal cannot. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you used your, your best judgment as to whether or not Pindar was suffering. And and probably and was, would not I, and would not have let him suffer. Well, you know, he he was suffering at the very end, and the question became, and it, it there's no objective answer to it. The vet, our veterinarians are wonderful people, right. um, and 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 our veter our main veterinarian, she said to me, she said, look, it's kind of a balancing act. You know, there's light, you know, quality of life considerations, right. and you kind of have to reckon how. Well, when is it the point at which you're just keeping him alive and he's not having any quality of life? Right. And a day came where it was just obvious. Sure, and I, we sure, just, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah because, it. listen, I know people who will keep them alive and drain and deplete their savings till the last possible moment. And really, when, you know, months, even sometimes perhaps years before, it, the animal should have been allowed to pass. And then it becomes you're keeping them alive for yourself. And that's... Right. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you what, Carolyn, you know, and now that you mention it, after I published that piece in the Dodo about lessons in philosophy right. from a cat, and then I also uh, did another one, an interview about um, uh, what do you do about cats and veganism, um, I got some feedback from people that suggested that, you know, this Steiner guy is some nefarious person who's keeping these animals alive purely for his own sort of crafty pleasure. And it wasn't like that at all. It was just I only wanted him to have a good life, and I didn't want to pull the plug on him when he would have 10 years of life left sure. just because he was inconvenient. You know? Well, no, listen, listen, you know, at, at the very end, I think – Listen, my, my Ella, who I had to send across the Rainbow Bridge uh, a couple of about a few months ago, uh, had a wonderful life. Mm. But there, then again, you yeah. know, you know, when they are communicating with you, when her, when her head is down, when she's in a corner, when she doesn't want to, you know, quote unquote, bother me with her illness, that it's that it's time to go. And actually, the veterinarian who came to uh, to send her off did say, you know, she gives she gives people three three choices. Um 
take the take the animal to a brick and mortar and biopsies and x-rays and surgeries etc 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 second choice is uh, anti-nausea drugs uh, so that they will continue to eat because Ella had stopped right. eating or the third choice being you know euthanize at home you know with love and grace and dignity and and I literally looked at her and I said are there people who actually choose the first two choices and she said oh yes all the time and I thought they see that that's that's to me where it, where it becomes selfish but today yeah, we are. We are again. Sorry, because uh, Ella's loss stays with me e- even now. So I'm sure that Pindar, you're still feeling the loss of Pindar. So we we have. It's rough. It's yes, rough. Yeah, it it's hard it around here. But you know. know, they say. Thank you. They say. Who who is they? I always say that they is the Van Patten family. Um, <laughs> that they, they say that when an animal passes, it's simply making room in your heart and your life and your home for another animal. So so get back get back out there, Doctor Steiner. There are There's animals. a lot of animals who need to be animals. rescued out there. Lots of animals. Uh, Andrea uh, wants to start off. I think the question, the, the discussion with it, with an interesting question about your ethical veganism, because you are a staunch right. ethical veganism, and how that differs, just I guess, from regular veganism. So take it away. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's that kind of a two-part question for you this uh, for you today. Um, what was the moment, what happened that caused you to say, Hey, I'm going to become a vegetarian. And then to that, what was the moment that you said, okay, Hey, I'm going to transition into veganism because I think these are topics that we need to, you know, just talk about. So people have information to make, to make good, good decisions in their lives. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I really appreciate your starting off with that. For me, it was like this. Um, I've always loved animals, and some of my very earliest memories are of a native of Los Angeles going to the San Diego Zoo with my family and going to the pet, like the petting zoo. In fact, my, my, my wonderful wife, Paula, uh, found some old, old photos of me. At, I must be four years old. I'm looking at them right now, and she, she had them digitized and printed and framed. It's me at the petting zoo at the San Diego Zoo. And, you know, I've always loved animals so much and, and, and cared about them so deeply, and my whole capacity for loving is inseparable from my love for animals. And... Somewhere along the line, I started to think about the meat-eating question and how you know animals are killed. Um, when I was 15 in the 10th grade in an American Lit course, I read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, and I wrote a term paper on it. And then my my poor English teacher was so frustrated with it because she, her notes to me were. I don't think you understood the point of this book. It's not about animal suffering. It's about human beings, because, you know, it was a socialist uh, tract. And um, that actually reinforced in me the sense that there's something problematic about people caring a lot more about human suffering than they do about the enormous, vast suffering of non-human animals, who, as Carolyn was saying just a minute ago, can't speak to us in, in, in terms that we understand clearly uh, but who suffer uh, at our hands in all kinds of ways. And somehow by the time I was in graduate school, in my late 20s, I just decided i got to stop eating meat. I just can't do this anymore. I can't be part of this. And uh, so in 1983, I became a vegetarian. And then um, when I finished my graduate work uh, in the early 90s, uh, I thought, well, you know, I want to start doing something in philosophy once I got a stable job at uh, at Bucknell um, that's just really bringing philosophical analysis and my my personal passions together. 
And I started reading a lot about uh, animal rights and the treatment of animals. And I started to learn that, you know, egg and milk production are every bit as cruel as as meat production. And all the animals that we use to get eggs and milk get killed in the same slaughterhouses in the end as the animals um, who we raise for meat. And I decided that I needed to stop consuming eggs and dairy. And that was actually a very hard move to make. Um, just because, you know, we're culturally, we're so accustomed to consuming animal products of all kinds. And it's easy in a way to take meat or animal flesh out of your diet. But when you have to start reading labels and see that whey is in just about everything, or, or that eggs show up in a lot of things that you wouldn't otherwise expect, like pasta or bread or whatever it might be, it was a real challenge. But 1996, I decided I can't do that anymore either. And I just, I decided as a matter of principle, I was going to stop. And I have to say, though, that even though my primary motivation has been ethical, there's also a health consideration because a lot has been written that makes it very clear that, um, you know, health-wise, you're much better off being a vegan. And that was kind of a side benefit that I've enjoyed. And, you know, meanwhile, my dad was on statins for decades, and my brother is on statins. And, you know, I have 150 cholesterol, and I don't take anything. And, you know, I'm, I'm trim, and I'm healthy, and hopefully we'll live a long time. And so that's kind of a side benefit. But the primary thing was just learning more and more about the the really eye-opening, horrible things that we do to animals in the production of food. And that's really ultimately what it was. But you've taken it, I think, a, a step further, or actually probably many steps further, certainly. Uh, I, I'm, gonna hope, I'm hoping that my listeners can kind of try and wrap their, their heads around the way you, and I'm assuming Paula, uh, live your lives, and that is no animal products, I believe, at all. So we're talking no leather, no... no. Yeah. Go keep 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 going. No leather. No uh, no uh, wool. Razor blades. No that, silk. That, no no silk. No wool. Yeah, I use um. You know, I think what you're referring to with the razor blades is um, in in an op-ed piece I wrote for the New York Times uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving in right. 2009. I mentioned right. a lot of things that uh, animal products show up in, and one of them that I had just learned at that time was those little comfort strips on things like fusion razors or those multi-blade disposable razors have animal fat in them. Let me, and let at me, that let... time, what I did was I switched to those old-fashioned single-blade um, razors and uh, got actually get a great shave with them. But, you know, so, yeah, it's wool, leather, silk. Um, it's impossible to be a vegan in a completely strict sense because animal products show up in all kinds of things. I think it's probably fair to say that it's it's literally impossible to buy an automobile that didn't involve animals in its production or, or processing. How's, how's and it's not just the material. Mm. It's also animals, animal materials being used in the production of things that get used in things like cars. So glues, paints, sure. um, all kinds of things have animal products and you wouldn't otherwise know. Magnesium stearate is is largely, if not exclusively, an animal product, and it shows up in all kinds of stuff. So you really have to be a reader, and you really have to research. And, yeah, we've taken it, we've taken it to another level around here. 
You for have, sure. yes. I was. I'm just. I'll just. I'll just quote you from from this uh, this op-ed piece. It's 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 entitled "Animal Vegetable Miserable," and it was published November 21st, 2009, in the New York Times. The more you dig, the more you learn about products you would never stop to think might contain or involve animal products in their production, like wine and beer, isinglass. A kind of gelatin derived from fish bladders is often used to fine or purify these beverages. Refined sugar, bone char is sometimes used to bleach it, band-aids, animal products in the adhesive. And just last week I was told that those little comfort strips on most razor blades contain animal fat. So you, ha- you are you're living off, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't frequent the mini mall, I'm assuming, a, a great deal. <laughs> for, for Not a lot, and we don't eat at, you know, I live at Bucknell University in a small town of about 7,000 residents, um, we don't eat out much. And when we do, I make what for me is a compromise, which is I'm, I'm eating in a restaurant that's not a purely vegan restaurant, so the cooking surfaces and utensils are being used to you know, cook animal products. And so I know vegans, maybe we'll talk about them uh, down the line in this discussion, um, I know vegans who won't do that. Gary Francione won't do that, the Rutgers uh, professor who I co-edit the book series with. He just won't go to a non-vegan restaurant. And, uh, um, you know, it's a compromise I make that occasionally I will go to a restaurant that's, you know, an omnivorous-type restaurant. But we like to say, and and only half-jokingly, that the best restaurant, the best vegan restaurant in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, is our house. Is your is your And we love to cook. I'm I'm sure. And now and now your wife Paula was she she was she was completely on board with this, or did you meet her post-veganism? Did you meet? Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's. Uh, thanks for ripping off that scab, Carolyn. Um, what happened was uh, we. Both my pleasure. That's before. that's my job. <laughs> And <laughs> you're very, you're very good. That's right. Um, uh, what happened was we've been both been married before. Uh, um, I was married briefly. Paula was married for a very long time, and uh, we both ended up getting divorced in the early to mid 2000s. And we got together uh, about nine years ago. And Paula's vegetarian, but and and mostly vegan, but not completely. And um, actually, somewhat recently, she finally she she announced to me one day because. I, in a second marriage, you get the idea that you don't own the other person. You're just kind of living with them, and you have to let them come to things on their own. I was always hoping that she would become completely vegan, but what happened was we went and visited Gary Francione and his wife. we good friends with them, and um, we came back from that visit, and they're hardcore vegans. They're the most hardcore vegans I've, I've ever known, and... Uh, between that and a few other events that occurred, Paula announced to me one day, she says, you know what, I've been strict vegan for six weeks now. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And she says, I, I think I get it now. And it was just, it was hard to make that move to completely eliminate dairy uh, uh, out, of her, um, out of her diet. And, um, but somehow it percolated down into the core of her soul, and she decided that she really wanted to do this. And I said, do you think this is going to stick? And she said, oh, yeah. This is this is this is this is a permanent thing. So we're now both completely vegan. But I've been vegan, like I said, for I don't know, at least ten years before we even got together. Wow! Terrific, Gray. What do you got? Anything? Well, I, <clears throat> I'd like to to hear more of your thoughts, Doctor, on on your teachings uh, with respect to um, human history and our relationship with animals. Um, uh, I get the sense that. You know, your view of, of the ancient Greeks, I read a little bit about your synopsis, um, how that has impacted all of human civilization for eons and our, and our relationship with animals. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that and maybe 
um, talk what the implications are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, this is also a really good uh, starting point. The first of the three books on animals that I wrote was a, a history book, essentially, going from the ancient Greeks up to the present. And, and two main threads come out of this that influence our thinking, whether we are consciously aware of it or not. And actually, in, in the interview with Larry Kay, Carolyn mentioned one of these, which is the Christian tradition. So it's the Greek, ancient Greeks and the Christian tradition both sort of converge in a way that proclaim human superiority over everything else in the natural world. And for a real kind of turning point in all of this is Aristotle in the roughly 300s BC, um, who proclaimed that only human beings have this capacity called logos. And logos is you know, like in the book of John, in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word. Logos is this, is this term that means a lot of different things in ancient Greek, but the primary meanings that Aristotle has in mind are language and rationality. And so he proclaimed that only human beings possess the, the capacity for linguistic rationality. That made us superior to non-human animals. And for Aristotle, that gave us license to use animals, just like plants and other resources, just to satisfy our needs. And so a kind of hierarchy was proclaimed way, way, way back thousands of years ago. And this idea gets picked up um, already in medieval Christianity by St. Augustine and uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, thinkers like Martin Luther, and even these Christian thinkers like St. Francis of Assisi, who is thought of as the guy who preached to the animals, in the anthropocentrism book, I talk a little bit in the chapter on medieval Christianity about St. Francis, and it turns out that even he is not straightforwardly an animal advocate. It's not as clear as sort of the, the um, apocryphal stories about him would suggest. So what you get throughout the history of Western philosophy is really hooked to that Aristotelian idea that only human beings are rational, or only human beings have language. And then it morphs over the centuries into attempts to argue that human beings are ex exclusive possessors of some kind of capacity. And people today call it human exceptionalism, that humans are exceptional in planning, long-term planning behavior, or tool use, or um, certain forms of sociability, or the ability for empathy. And one by one, these supposed claims of human uh, uh, exclusive possession have been sort of knocked down as not true. So, you know, crows use tools, chimpanzees use tools, lots of animals use tools, so lots of animals make tools. Um, there's lots of ingenuity in non-human animals, and what it ends up boiling down to is the idea that, well, because they don't use human language, animals must somehow be inferior to us. And yet the more that we learn about animal capacities, the more we learn there's all this amazing stuff that non-human animals are capable of doing. And, you know, it, it comes down to the point where there's kind of a starting four today of animals who, who kind of belie that Aristotelian claim. And the big ones now are, and I know, Carolyn, you're into elephants. Elephants are super smart. And cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins, super smart. Elephants, Higher crows, primates, pigs, and course. orcas. Say again? Elephants, crows, pigs, orcas, the four smartest animals on the planet with things with, with an intelligence that approaches human intelligence because of their problem-solving capability. I would Yeah, I, the crows, the crows are super smart. So they're part of a family called corvids that include crows, rooks, jays, nutcrackers and ravens and they're wicked smart. 
You can yeah. look up Betty the Crow on YouTube and you see her like taking a pipe cleaner and making a shepherd's crook out of it and pulling something out of a vessel that she couldn't reach with her beak. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, it would, so the question becomes, does logos have to mean human language, like subject predicate structured uh, syntax? Uh, or can logos mean something much broader? which is just forms of ingenuity and intelligence. I mean, Carolyn, in, in Larry Kay's interview, you were talking about how human beings seem to be exclusive possessors of the capacity to do really horrible things. And I think that's really true, well, that um, I mean, we totally underestimate the, you know, no non-human animals have come this close to completely despoiling the environment well, irretrievably. Also, also, uh, the humans uh, uh, are the uh, only uh, ones who are, who, are, who are capable of torture. Animals, so in, I mean, in, ter- in terms of ascribing a certain morality to humans versus animals, I would, I would possibly agree with you, Dr. Steiner, that h- humans are the only ones who, who torture their own kind torture their own kind, not kill, but torture. No, and, but I, I'm going to throw a little cold water on, on that because okay. I, I, think it, I think it comes down to balance. Um, okay. Nature thrives when there's balance, right? And I think there are examples where plenty of species, when the, there's no balance, will destroy their environment. Rats will destroy their environment. Uh, chimpanzees will, will commit uh, murder of 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 rival uh, troops. So maybe the scale of the destruction is different, but the core behaviors, the core nature, if you will, it exists across a lot of species. Elephants are a fantastic animal, but in large numbers, they completely destroy their environment. So I, I disagree with some of the conclusions that we're drawing here. Right. About- I, would you, but what, Gray, would you, would you agree that in terms of torture, I mean, uh, you know, a, a cat batting around a mouse for a while is, is yeah. one thing, but torturing well, specifically, you know, for information, for pleasure, et cetera. I, I, I do disagree because okay. there are transient killer whales in South America that will purposely beach themselves to grab sea lions off the, off the, off the shoreline, and then they will drag them out into sea and beat them, beat them up, beat them around, and 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 toy with them, as a way of teaching their young hunting skills. Ah. Now, one person's hunting skills is another species' torture. So I think we we, we have to we can't lose sight of biology here and okay. evolution in some of the the very behaviors that we're ascribing just to human beings. We do see it in nature. We just have to we have to look for it and be honest about it. Well, now, no, Gray, I think, I think you're making a, a good and valid point. I, I would qualify it in one way, though. Um, it's one thing to say that there's a lot of violence. I mean, it's Tennyson who said nature is red in tooth and claw, and it's absolutely right. In fact, predation is the one thing I've never, since those days at the San Diego Zoo as a four-year-old, I've never been able to get my mind around the idea that, there's, you know, that life is predicated on violence and death. And humans are not uh, alone in being involved in that. It's absolutely correct. However, when you think about the capacity for abstract thought that Aristotle had in mind when he attributed a certain form of logos to human beings, that actually facilitates um, uh, uh, action on a scale um, that is incomparable to anything that you just named. So, for example, I'm reading a book right now. I'm going to use it in my animals course in the fall uh, by Charles Patterson called Eternal Treblinka, Our Treatment of Animals in the Holocaust. And I wouldn't want to defend everything that Patterson says in that book, but what he's trying to do 
is, is make less counterintuitive the idea that what we do to non-human animals is comparable to the Nazi slaughter of, of Jews on a systematic industrialized scale. And that's the one difference. Now, Gray, you might want to call that a difference in, in degree rather than a difference in kind. I don't really have a, a quibble with that, but the point is I think it would be very hard to find something that animals do in a very systematic, theoretically calculated global scale that is comparable to what human beings do to each other in whether it's, it's, um, whether it's Turks killing Armenians or whether it's Nazis killing Jews or whether it's human beings with industrialized mass animal slaughter. It's just there's nothing comparable in the non-human animal world, I would suggest. I, I agree with you, and, and but I'm just simply suggesting that other species have destroyed their local habitats right. and right. see the examples of that. So my, I guess my question is, what's the alternative? What, what is your, if, if Aristotle had it wrong, how should we be viewing this relationship with between humans and animals? I'm curious. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, thank you for keeping this, you know, properly on track. I mean, it's one thing to say is. We're animals. You know, that's why I keep referring to, to what we usually refer to as animals as non-human animals, because humans are animals, too. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, Gray, what you're talking about is we're just living out certain either imperatives or tendencies that are, are seen throughout the animal world. And in that respect, we're really no different than animals. It's just what abstract thought and, la and human language enable us to do, sort of the scale of the violence. For me... Um, and this goes back to the original question about what made me become a vegan is, as Gary Francione, the law professor at Rector's, likes to say, veganism is nonviolence. And it's, it's an ahimsa kind of principle that, for me, we could do an enormous – it's not going to solve the predation problem, and it's not going to solve global warming, and it's not going to solve all human problems. But when you think about the fact that the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization reports that currently, every year, worldwide, 60 billion land animals are killed for human consumption, um, that's as many, I, I read some, done some research on this, that's as many non-human animals in a year and a half as the total number of human beings ever to have existed. It's, it's, and if you can, and then Jonathan Balcom, who's a, who's a fish um, uh, ethologist, he says, or he's an animal ethologist, he, said, he wrote a book about fish recently, and he says if you figure in fish and sea creatures, um, it, the number is over a trillion per year. So for me, um, by being vegan, I'm trying to minimize my involvement in a kind of systematized, industrialized regime of violence against non-human animals that – by the way, also has terrible uh, implications for global warming. Just the methane produced by cattle is, is epic and, and is a major contributor to global warming. I think by being vegan, if people just decide they don't need or want to consume animal products, that would be a very big step in the right direction. I mean, just if you want something very straightforward, that would right. be my first step. I, was, I tell you this, Gray, I was at a conference, a philosophy conference about 15 years ago, gave a talk on animals. And it was like early evening. And in the discussion, a person in the audience said to me, this is a true story, couldn't make this up. She said, what's one thing you'd recommend that people in this room could do to improve the fortunes of non-human animals? And I said, you could all become vegans tonight. 
And you know what her answer was? She said, no, I mean, seriously. Right. Right. It's 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 and I'm sure you laughed. I'm sure you laughed as I'm laughing. Let's I cried but, a little inside. Right. Right. Because <laughs> because because uh, to be perfectly honest, in in your best of all possible worlds, you would like everybody today, tonight to stop eating animals. I mean, and we're, we're not talking, you know, citywide we're ta- or statewide or countrywide. We're talking globally. If everyone stopped eating meat, that would make Dr. Steiner very, very happy. I don't think that that is that 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 I'm that I'm exaggerating. Now let me ask you a no, question. That would be better for the animals it certainly. Would be, it would be better for the animals, but let me ask you a question. This the 60 billion animals that are killed every year for human consumption. What would you do with those animals? Would you turn them loose? Where would you put them? How would you would you keep, right. would you would you not have them breed? Because at at a certain point, for instance, there are there are hunters in the in the Pacific Northwest, Montana, et cetera, who who will hunt for population control because populations of deer, bear, raccoon, wolves will become unhealthy. So we've you've now got let's say, hypothetically speaking, you've got sixty billion animals on the planet, and and their offspring. And those offspring, and so now we're talking multi-generational. What would you do with those animals, and how would you keep them from encroaching into human areas? Humans will then start encroaching into their areas. What would you, I mean, do you, have you thought about that long term in terms of, or do you just assume that we're not going to become vegan, all of us, overnight, and that there will be a gradual decline? Because methane from cows will increase if, if there are, you know. Five billion right. cows. Right now, the, this is this is a point on which, and it's a very important one, and it's also one of the most counterintuitive implications of what what people like Francione and I refer to as the abolitionist view of animal rights. Right. So, the abolitionist view is you just stop these practices altogether. The the opposite view is what's called the welfareist view, the animal welfare view, which is, you know, you just treat the animals better. And then it, it it's okay. And uh, so I'm a hardcore abolitionist. I think the practices should just stop. And uh, Francione is the person you really want to interview on a question like this because he can give a much more fine grained analysis than I can. But I can tell you this much. What do you think he would One say? One of the most counter. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said, what do you think he would say? <laughs> yeah, this is what Gary would say. Um, Francione. Uh, he would say domestication is in its very nature, and others have written about this besides him. David Nybert um, published a book, a couple of books in our series uh, on this. Um, domestication needs to end because it's fundamentally violence against animals. And there's a, I, there's a lot that can be said about the, the way in which it is, and I can imagine Grace challenging me on this, which I think is good, because nobody should take these ideas at face value. But the idea is what you do with the existing animals is, the existing domesticated animals is you steward them, um, you take care of them, you give them as good a life as you can. You don't, and you have to, look, you have to interfere with their freedom in some way or other. And one way to do it is to kill them and eat them or, and let them reproduce before you kill them. Another way is you don't let them reproduce. The lines die out and then there are no more domesticated animals. One of the really counterintuitive and to me, even to me, troubling implications of this is pets are domesticated exactly. animals. Companion animals are domesticated Pindar. animals. Pindar was a domesticated and I have animal. had a lot of love with a lot of cats. Right. And 
that would that would be a thing of the past. But the thing is, what I used to say about Pindar is, um, I gave him a great life. I mean, I went to great lengths, and I'll, I'll bet you do too with your companion animals. But Pindar was living in a luxury prison. You know, he ate when you know, he didn't go outside. He ate what I wanted him to eat. He ate as much as I wanted him to eat. He ate when I wanted him to eat. Um, a lot of his his conduct was very carefully controlled and delimited by me. And my thinking is, it goes back to this this Greek and Christian idea that we're the crown of creation. If you really undo that Aristotelian, this is what Gray was asking about. If you really undo that Aristotelian thinking, then the question becomes, do we have a right to encroach in wild nature and try to fix things on behalf of animals, or is is the problem our 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 very encroachment upon the natural world? Well. Which is, in part, unavoidable. Well, I, I, I would argue that because we have, at this point, let's not even say 100 years ago, but at this point, because we have so encroached uh, on the wild, now it is our responsibility to steward and to fix if we can. If we knew back then what we know now, maybe, maybe you know, things would be different. But I'm, I'm wondering, if you, were to able, if you were able to ask Pindar, Pindar, would you have yeah. preferred 10 years ago when you were brought in, when we were you were rescued from the barn, to die, or would you prefer to have me care for you in 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 a prison? What do you think Pindar would have said? Well, um, that's a it's a good question, and I've written a little bit about this, not specifically about Pindar, but about about non-human animals. Um, I have an ongoing debate with a former president of Bucknell University, Gary Soika, who's going to come. He's, he's a biologist, and he's now retired, but he's going to come speak to my animals course. He and I, for many years, have had this, this dispute or debate about whether it's legitimate to eat non-human animals. And he raises sheep on his farm, uh, a certain species that wouldn't exist if we didn't raise them and ultimately end up using them and, and killing them. And he thinks it's perfectly okay because I mean, he loves his sheep and he's really good to his sheep and he really he really is and and uh, he thinks it's just on its face prima facie better for an animal to live in this kind of what I call servitude than not to exist at all and his thinking is there's a kind of exchange or almost a, a bargain or contract and in the ancient world Lucretius in this text called on the nature of things suggested this at one point in that text that you know animals make kind of a bargain domesticated animals they get protection and 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 they get fed and so forth by us and in exchange they ultimately give their lives to us my own argument has been i don't think you can make a generalization about what all animals would say about whether they prefer to be domesticated and exist rather than not to exist at all and I, the analogy that i draw is to i t I, I take french uh, courses at Bucknell, just kind of on the side. And one of them was a really fascinating seminar on the French slave trade to Guadeloupe. And we read some of these narratives of what, what the crossing in the ships was like and how some people would accept servitude so they could stay alive. And some people would drown themselves and their, their babies. And yet other people, I learned how you say to swallow your tongue in French in that course, avaler la langue. Some people would swallow their tongue in order to commit suicide. And what I learned from reading those texts was you can't make a blanket generalization about whether everybody in a certain situation would have the same view about it. 
I honestly don't know what Pindar would have said. Um, but if the, if the alternative is death, that's one thing. But maybe that's not the only alternative. I'm just trying to use my imagination here. Are the only alternative servitude to human beings or death? Is there nothing else? I don't, I don't know. know. Perhaps, I mean, perhaps look, when you domesticate an animal, you reduce them quite a lot. Like perhaps. if you talk to people who raise dogs, it turns out you know a non a non you know a non house pet dog is much. I've I've known some. They're much more wild and they're a very different type of creature than an animal that has become kind of a lap dog. And so you really they they, they there is a a price that they pay for domestication. Can we pick up on that with your with with your your views on animal welfareism, which which you, I think you indicated you're, you're you don't subscribe to that point of view. Um, yeah. And so my my question is, <clears throat> increasingly in zoos and in farming and so forth, there has been this push over the last well through most of my career, but certainly the last twenty years, towards uh, more humane farming, more humane uh, wildlife management, et cetera. Uh, right. training positive reinforcement. We know that there's data out there that shows that animals that are trained to participate in their veterinary care, for example, have much lower uh, stress responses than than animals that are not conditioned for these these cooperative behaviors. So, so my uh -huh. question is, if if your post welfareism at least aims to improve the lives of the animals to the extent that they are alive, whether they're farm animals or zoo animals or domestic pets that we hope live forever. Isn't that preferable to their condition in nature, which doesn't guarantee any sort of good welfare for the individual? I mean, let's face it, it's, it's typically the, the animal that suffered injury or a mistake that's picked off by the lions, right? So if, if nature is a worse condition in the sense of the, the individual animal's welfare that it can achieve or experience, isn't animal welfareism a, a more moral, more ethical point of view, even than nature? Um, so, so again, uh, this is a w very well-framed question. I'll give you a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is no, it's not. <laughs> the longer answer, <laughs> just, just to get to, okay. the, to the end of the All road right. quickly, but this is also super controversial, and I acknowledge in advance that I'm in a very small minority on this. And this is a Francione idea. That I, I'm going to give him credit where credit is amply due, because he has rewritten the whole kind of landscape of animal rights theorizing in the last 30 or 35 years. Um, Francione's point, and I can elaborate just a little bit, Gray, is this. Animal welfare legislation and animal welfare measures don't really help animals in the long run. What they do is they make people feel better about exploiting animals. So take, for example, Proposition 2, which was passed by a two-thirds majority of the California uh, voting population in November of 2008. It marginally increases the area that brooding chickens have to, to be in, which is it roughly from the size of a piece of notebook paper to the size of a piece of legal paper. And these, these measures are pretty incremental, and they're all basically, when they're undertaken, they're undertaken because they turn out to make things more profitable for food corporations. And they don't really change what happens to animals, which is that they're confined in pretty small spaces, they're, they're not treated well at all, um, and they're ultimately killed. And uh, I, to me, I really follow Francione in the view that the idea of 
uh, welfare is, is the, the core problem with it is that I think humane killing is an oxymoron. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And when you go to the question, which I, I ask myself all the time, I really, really do, you know, isn't this better than being in wild nature where things, I wouldn't want to be in wild nature. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be killed in an instant, probably pretty horribly. I keep coming back to this idea that this is the cultural conditioning of 2,400 years of thinking according to which we know better than nature what's good for nature, or that somehow it's up to us to decide what you do. Now, there's a fine line here, because I think Carolyn is right. We've so screwed up the environment and so screwed up the world that we can't just ignore it, and we have to do things to try to help. I don't see anything that involves killing animals as helping them. That's just kind of the short version of it. And, 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 I, and I understand that, and I'm, I, I value the, the importance of, say, an ethical hunter in controlling populations and trying to maintain the balance that we humans have disrupted. Um, one of the things that I think that needs to be interjected in, in some of the thought process here is, and it's a, it's a struggle that modern zoos are dealing with right now, and it's one that I don't think we have articulated well, and we certainly haven't solved the issue, and that is we keep flip-flopping back between our domestic pets, our individual animals at home, and populations in the wild or, or in farms or wherever. And what zoos are now tasked with, when I was a kid, when you were going to the petting zoo, zoos were tasked with with displaying and caring for individual animals. Yes, they might have been in a, in a breeding situation, but by and large, zoos historically were display publicly individuals, care for individuals. In the last 20 or 30 years, because of population declines, because of the growth of the human population, modern zoos are now tasked with preserving populations, exactly. both in human care and in the wild. And those are two very different tasks. And as you know, the needs of the individual are often at odds with the needs of the population. And in nature, it takes care of the population, or it takes care of itself, the population, by often being very harsh to the individual. And I think mm -hmm. the conversation that you're having needs to reflect the fact that at one point we're going from an individual to the population, and those needs are often not the same. Right. Now, here's one thing to keep in mind. And again, this is, this is a topic on which there are specialists whose, whose knowledge goes beyond mine. But the two names that come to mind as, uh, as authorities on this are Dale Jameson, J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N, and he heads the Animal Studies Initiative at New York University. And the other one is Mark Beckoff, B-E-K-O-F-F, -F, and he is one of the pioneers of uh, the study of play behavior in canids, in dogs and wolves. And uh, uh, he has written quite a lot about uh, animal behavior and about um, justice toward animals. These guys both, Beckoff and Jameson, know a lot about and have written about zoos, Jameson in particular. And it turns out that the conservation claim of zoos is bogus. There is no real conservation that's done. They don't reintroduce animals into the wild, except maybe in very rare circumstances. And ultimately, when you read their work, what you discover, and I've, I've actually got a zoo bibliography I can send you after the interview, what you find is that zoos are essentially um, places where human beings can go and look at captive animals. That's kind of all they ultimately really accomplish. Well, so I, I do defer to your point about individuals and and groups, but I don't think zoos are the answer. Well, you have you have three people here. Let who me just would, say this, Carolyn. Would... I, I disrespect. I, 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 
I disagree respectfully with you respectfully disagree, because yeah. we are seeing such declines in populations around the world. Zoos have reintroduced species. There are a dozen that we can rattle off right now. Now, you might say that's a drop in the bucket, and I would agree with you. There's plenty more to do. Right. But this, this um, effort to undermine or eliminate zoos is coming at the worst possible time in human uh, history and planetary history, given the decline in species and the lack of knowledge that we have about natural systems and how to preserve them. So I, 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 would, I, think that, I think you make a pretty broad claim it, there that isn't substantiated yeah. by the Yeah, by but the I, yeah and, per, and perhaps perhaps you, there might be a little more research that you might want to do, Dr. Steiner. But I would ask you this. Um, at the San Diego Zoo, how did, you, how did you first come to love animals when you were four? You, you went to the zoo, and you saw ambassadors. You saw zoo ambassadors, things that you would not see um you know in in your own backyard uh literally or or if you were perhaps living you know in Alaska or Ohio or in the middle of the country you saw you saw animals as you know sort of as ambassadors for for their own species and would it be safe to say that that's where you learned your love of animals I would say no. I mean, now that may be, it may be true. For, it's like what I said about what every animal make the same choice. Different people come to these things in different ways. And I don't want to say the way I came to it is authoritative or, you know, determines how everybody does. But for me, by the time I went to that zoo visit, I already loved animals. And for me, the first encounter was probably in like reading Ferdinand the Bull or Anatole the Mouse uh-huh. when I was a little child, uh-huh. those children's books, and having right. face-to-face encounters with animals. Right, right. Um, uh, that, uh, uh, but but uh, I will, I'll just go back to what you led off with in, in the conversation, which was you went to the San Diego Zoo at the age of four, and you were exposed to so many different animals. And as we all know, one of the great creeds of this show is that we don't care about what we don't know about. You now, you know, you now knew about those animals from having seen them, from having experienced those animal ambassadors. And I would venture to say that Ferdinand the Bull reading on a page is one thing, but now you have the sights, the smells, the sounds of these animals, and it's imprinted in your, in your little four-year-old brain. And that's because of the great work done by a place like the San Diego Zoo. People don't know, people don't care, as I say, about what they don't know about. Now you know about them. Now you knew about them. So you, so it imprinted on you, I would say. And then, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, and now you have now come to this point, um, which, I, which I find um, interesting. You are doing what you feel is good work in terms of animal care, animal welfare. There should never be any uh, killing of animals for human consumption in, in, in any form. But, I mean, that's because you went to the zoo. See, I, I still would disagree with that. And okay. In fact, I'd say anybody who wants to really look into this, email me, gsteiner at bucknell.edu, and I'll send you my zoo bibliography. And another thing you should look at that's not on that, but I'll probably add to it, is there's a guy named John Berger. B-E-R-G-E-R, who wrote a very famous book called Ways of Seeing in the early 70s. And in 1980, Berger wrote a book called About Looking. And he's got this very, very famous essay called Why Look at Animals. Anybody who wants to, and I, I don't think people should just believe what I'm saying because I'm saying it. I really think there's a debate here, and we're having it. And I think anybody who wants to weigh in on this debate really needs to read Why Look at Animals by John Berger, because what he argues there is 
what you see in the zoo is not a fully three-dimensional animal living the way it would live left to its own devices. It's something that's been reduced to an object of consumption or, you know, or visual consumption. And I, I, I happen to be persuaded by that way of looking at this, even though on the other hand, there's something in a kind of unreflective way that's totally remarkable about going to a zoo and being able to see animals I would never be able to see up close um, if there weren't such things as zoos. Bottom line for me is I think that zoos are not a good thing. I don't go to zoos anymore. I don't go to circuses anymore. Um, I think it's just a form of human entertainment that doesn't ultimately accomplish what it purports to accomplish. But that's just my view. You I, know, I, and I, I see I, that no, you and Gray are doing a pretty nice job of, of representing the other side of this. And, and well, I appreciate well, your point of view, and, we, and I we certainly do. have experienced you know, these kinds of conversations over the years. But I would say that there are, legitimately, there are a multitude of species that would not exist today without human intervention, without private and public partnerships like zoos, like breeding facilities. Uh, they just won't exist. And, and given the declines in our in our environment, that trend is going to likely continue. So we, we need that intervention, whether it's appropriate or not from a philosophical standpoint, we have created a, a problem. Absolutely true. It's going Absolutely to require true. human beings to, to intervene in a positive way or the problems are going to get much, much more worse. And, and Gray, Gray right, you, and you I talk about... No, I'm, go ahead, Carolyn. I was going to say, Gray, you, you talk about nature and, and what, was in, what was natural, even perhaps 100 years ago, is no longer natural because, again, I will reiterate that we have so utterly screwed up this planet. So if you want to, you know, sort of let all the animals go and whatever dies, dies, that's... That would not necessarily be nature's way because nature has been has been has been morphed into something that we don't we we can't even recognize as you know the post as a, as as a you know pre-modern natural world. But that's a fair I point. Think there, are, there are symbiotic relationships in nature uh, ex, that are yeah. beneficial to host and absolutely and, true. And, absolutely yes. true. Um, I would mm -hmm. say, Dr. Steiner, that. Um, with with regard to zoos, thank you. I think I think we do uh, hold the the standard high, and we we raise the flag high for for modern zoos and aquariums. But I'm going to qualify that by saying modern zoos and aquariums. Twenty five, thirty five, forty years ago, I would say yes. If all zoos were sort of the the cement blocks, the cement cages, you know, the cement enclosures that, for instance, elephants had, you know, a twenty five by twenty five, and they were on a, you know, they were that, and that's all they had. I'd say absolutely. You were absolutely right. Modern zoos today are really taking into account. Uh, habitats of species. Um, what's what? What is giving more of a natural enclosure to 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 large large groups of animals? Um, so that's that's number one. Also, I have I've never met a keeper, a trainer, uh, a, a staff member, a janitor, a curator, the director of a zoo who looks at looks at these animals and says, "Gosh, yes, I want to see these animals behind bars." Every individual that right. I have, every individual right. that I I've met wants to see them out in the wild. Every, every individual That's... that I've met wants would would love it to see every single animal in their care out in the wild. That's that that right. I do know. So, but but in this day and age now, I mean, just with using using my logos, uh, they it's they're mandatory. Zoos, modern zoos and aquariums are mandatory now because we lose 150 species a day naturally. 
um, by, and, and, and having, having done what we've done to the planet, we're losing 150. And when, they, when animals go, we go. So we follow in the footsteps because, as I like to say, they don't need us, but we, we do need them. We do need them. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to suggest that anybody who works in a zoo has some kind of evil intent. Not at all. You, you know, I, I think it's an institutional problem. And, you know, I think we just have to ad- agree to disagree on this. And I would suggest that anybody who wants to t- take a kind of a reasoned position on this should read up on this. You know, read some of the, read Jameson, read Beckoff, read Berger. Or just listen and, to the show. And, and make, you know, make a decision for yourself. Yeah. Can I, can or or they, can just, they can just listen to animal magnetism. That's, that's, <laughs> they can simply do that. Say, say it again. I didn't understand I said, or that. they can just listen to animal magnetism. It's as simple as that. Or they could just do that. That's right. Yes. And I know we're, we're running long, Caroline. I, I just have one long. last kind of maybe rhetorical question, and that is, if 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 humans were wrong in in separating ourselves out as superior from Aristotle's time onward, are we not in danger of making the very same mistake on the other side of that coin by by holding humans to a standard that is different from the rest of nature in how we interact with the rest of nature? I mean, yeah, isn't there yet another same, great. Yeah. Get another great question. My thinking about it is this, because this is the, the one I'll try to try to be brief because I know we're running long. Um, the, I think that the fact that we have a certain form of logos that ena- enables us to engage in abstract reasoning, it, the mistake of the tradition was in supposing that makes us superior to non-human animals and entitled to use them. For me, what it does is it just it just adds or creates obligations on our part that no non-human animals can possibly take on so that our responsibilities to care for nature care for non-human animals and the rest of of the planet are much greater than they would be otherwise and that's the only sense in which we're really different than non-human animals is that we can take on and be held to account for moral um, uh, uh, imperatives in a way that i think non-human animals ultimately cannot and that's why I think it's important that, so for regardless of the position that you take on zoos, the veganism question can, can be approached without having to ultimately settle that question, you know, as far as just what people do, as far as what they put in their bodies. And for me, what my reasoning has led me to is the conclusion that I don't need to eat animals. The only reason I would be inclined to consume them is because of convenience, pleasure, and habit, and for me, that's not a good enough reason to put them through everything we put them through in order to consume them. Excellent. Well, we will, we will end with that. Thank you so much, Dr. Steiner, Dr. Gary Steiner at Bucknell University, uh, for being on the show. Thoroughly appreciate, uh, and, and we are attempting to wrap our, our tiny little brains are, uh, around, around your views, but they, uh, they're very sound. So thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Gray, last words? Just a great, lively conversation. Really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Andrea? Thank you for really, really arguing it out with me. This is much better than just letting me talk. It, it, <laughs> these are issues that people have to struggle with for themselves. We it, were never going to let is. you just talk. We're not. Yeah. We, we're just not that. Andrea? <laughs> thank you both very, very much. Really, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And please, uh, we'll, we'll, we'd love to have you on again and, uh, and uh, debate some I'd love to be on again. More. Okay. Wonderful. Andrea? Yes, ma'am. Um, thank you for being here, my 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 great gal. Um, all love to you, and uh, yeah. and uh, you know, keep keep on doing your thing. 
Uh, We know times have been a little uh, interesting for you lately. So, um, wow, incredible debate, incredible discussion. And uh, and no 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 raised voices. This is wonderful. You see, people people on differing sides of the aisle can uh, can actually um, remain calm and collected. And I can throw a tantrum to, if you want me to. to under, yes, no, that's okay. I usually I usually do it. Sometimes I cry. Uh, can, we we can debate and discuss with um, with great dignity and respect for each other's views. So that's just a little takeaway from this show. Uh, thank you once again to my guest, Dr. Gary Steiner, Grace Stafford, as always, the Alpha and the Omega, as far as I'm concerned, Andrea Compton, uh, my producer, my wonderful co-host. Thank you, dear girl. Tony Sweet, the handsomest man in radio. And I am your host, Carolyn Hennessy. Please join us again in two weeks. Who knows what we'll have for you? Maybe we'll have my, the night I spent at the Georgia Aquarium. That's that's a good one. Uh, alone. With uh, seven million gallons of water over my head, uh, four whale sharks, and about seven giant mantas, um, we we may bring that to you in a couple of weeks. Who knows? It'll be it'll be interesting. Once again, in everything you do, listeners, always attempt to cultivate the preservationist heart. We'll see you again in two weeks. Bye bye. Something tells me it's all happening at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true. The monkeys stand for honesty, giraffes are insincere, and the elephants are kindly, but they're dumb. Orangutans are skeptical of changes in their cages And the zookeeper is very fond of rum Zebras are reactionaries and tell no submissionaries